Thank you for your prayers for me. Please continue. Docs reckon I've had a low-level infection for about seven weeks. And what session are we on? Yeah, like that's a coincidence. Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you that it has survived so many attempts to destroy and eradicate it, but still it stands. Father, we revere your word, and we pray this morning as we explore it again that you will just give us something today that will make us think, make us appreciate, make us respect you. Lord, we thank you for everything we're learning. Me too. And I just ask for open hearts, spirits and minds this morning. Oh, and maybe open ears too. That would be good. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen, amen, amen. Okay. Now then, don't forget you just one thing, yes? Now I appreciate for those of you who were here last week or have maybe already listened on the iPod, on the podcast, um, this series has been a big, chunky series, yes? And you're doing well to keep turning up, I'm quite astonished really. Which is why the importance on the just one thing. Sometimes in the midst of all of that, you can think, oh, it's too much, it's too much. But God wants you to take maybe just one thing. Okay. Today, we're going to be kind of rounding off a bit of David and then st starting a bit of Solomon. But there are three guys in particular we're going to need to be aware of. And they all... Start with the letter A. Oh, a. We have Amnon. We have Absalom. No, Absalom. In your notes, if I have forgotten the middle A, please forgive me. It's one of my blockages. It's an Absalom, not an Absalom. Yes, and the other one is. Adonijah. Yes? Three sons of David, all beginning with A. So if you address a letter to Mr. A, Prince, it could have been one of three. Yes? Okay. Now, we are in 2 Samuel 13. Please forgive me if I... Uh, Teach mainly from a stool this morning. <clears throat> God is good, and I'm actually sort of vertical, so that's good. Now then, 2 Samuel 13. Last week, we left on a bit of a cliffhanger, didn't we? I'd like to say in true EastEnders fashion, but it's a program I never watch and can't stand, so I'm probably not the best thing to use. Let's pick it up. And read what happened. 2 Samuel 13. In the course of time, Amnon, son of David, fell in love with Tamar, the beautiful sister of Absalom, son of David. 
Amnon became frustrated to the point of illness on account of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible for him to do anything to her. Now, Amnon had a friend named Jonadab, son of Shemaiah, David's brother. Jonadab was a very shrewd man. He asked Amnon, why do you, the king's son, look so haggard morning after morning? Why won't you tell me? And Amnon said to him, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Go to bed and pretend to be ill, Jonadab said. When your father comes to see you, say to him, I'd like my sister Tamar to come and give me something to eat. Let her prepare the food in my sight so I may watch her and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. When the king came to see him, Amnon said to him, I would like my sister Tamar to come and make some special bread in my sight so I may eat from her hand. So David sent word to Tamar at the palace, go to the house of your brother Amnon and prepare some food for him. So Tamar goes. She took dough, kneaded it, made the bread in his sight and baked it. Then she took the pan and served him the bread but he refused to eat. Don't you just hate that? When you've made the food and they say, come on, take now. Send everyone out of here, Amnon said. So everyone left him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, bring the food here into my bedroom so I may eat from your hand. Tamar took the bread she'd prepared and brought it to her brother Amnon in his bedroom. But when she took it to him to eat, he grabbed her and he said, Come to bed with me, my sister. Don't, my brother, she said to him, don't force me. Such a thing should not be done in Israel. Don't do this wicked thing. What about me? Where can I get rid of my disgrace? And what about you? You would be like one of the wicked fools in Israel. Please speak to the king. This is interesting. He will not keep me from being married to you. Okay. But he refused to listen to her, and since he was stronger than she, he raped her. Then Amnon hated her with intense hatred. In fact, he hated her more than he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, get up and get out. Now, just before we carry on, you'd just think she'd have wanted an opportunity to get out of that place, wouldn't you? He's saying, get out, get out of my sight. But what does she say? No! She said to him, sending me away would be a greater wrong than what you've already done to me. But he refused to listen. He calls his personal servant and said, get this woman out of here and bolt the door after her. Everyone thinks he's serious? So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. She was wearing a richly ornamented robe Note this very carefully. For this was the kind of garment the virgin daughters of the king wore. There probably ought to be the word only in that sentence. Only virgin daughters of the king wore that kind of a robe. Tamar put ashes on her head, tore the ornamental robe she was wearing, put her hand on her head and went away, weeping aloud as she went. Her brother Absalom said to her, Has that Amnon, your brother, been with you? Oh. Has Amnon been watching? Oh, sorry, Absalom been watching his brother. Hmm. Be quiet now, my sister. He is your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. What is Absalom up to? His full-blood sister, Tamar, And I say that carefully because David had several wives 
each of whom bore children, but Absalom and Tamar were the children of the same mother. So full-blood sibling relationship. She has just been raped. And, I don't know if it's worse or as well as, the rape is actually constitutionally and theologically incest. Yes? So if you can have two horrible things happen to you, she did. What is he up to? Be quiet. Don't take this thing to heart. Okay, let's have some observations on this whole thing. Amnon, remember, is David's firstborn son. Now, although we still don't have a constitution, um, uh, hereditary monarchy in place, um, he was firstborn and therefore probably in line for something. Yes? Thought he could do anything. Falls in love with Tamar. The incest situation there is clearly forbidden in Leviticus 18 and Deuteronomy 22. It's all in your notes. So he manipulates everything to be in the same room. And despite her desperate pleas, Amnon rapes her. And interesting, the second that he does, the love turns to hate. Not uncommon, I'm afraid. This is not love, though. This is lust. Dear friend Dr. Edwin Lewin Cole said, lust gets at the expense of others to benefit self. The opposite is true of love, that love gives at the expense of self to benefit others. What Amnon does is not love, it's lust. Yes? Tries to push her away. Now, this is really important. By doing so, he would have made it look as if Tamar had made a shameful proposition to him, not the other way round. And as there were no witnesses, Amnon had dismissed the servants. There was no one to back it up, no one to question. It destroyed her chance of marriage. That's why she, she tore the robe, ashes on her head and flies weeping. But this reaction of Absalom is ridiculous. Don't take this thing to heart. Man, it doesn't take rocket science to know that's not the thing you say to someone who's just been raped. Now, David hears about it, and he's furious, but does absolutely nothing. My goodness, I think any dad with a daughter who discovers that she's been raped would do something. But David, who has all the control and power, does nothing. And Absalom says nothing later, either. But look what we read about Tamar. She goes to live in Absalom's house, a desolate woman. I think now we would probably call that a serious dose of post-traumatic stress disorder. One incident has completely changed her life, as rape tragically often does. Now, Absalom waits. What's on screen? A time bomb. He waits and he waits. Now, how long does he wait? Two years. What do they say about? Revenge is a dish best served cold. 
Amnon is waiting. Uh, Absalom is waiting. Now, he engineers a feast. You can read it yourself. And he somehow manages to get Amnon to this feast, along with a whole bunch of his other princely brothers. But Absalom has said to his men, when you see Amnon getting drunk, I want you to kill him. What? Amnon, surprise, surprise, starts drinking. We're told he's in high spirits. And they do kill him. The men of Absalom. Now the other princes flee. And David is told, King, all of your sons are dead. What? My sons, my heirs, gone. What's happening? He tears his own clothes in mourning. We looked last week at the number of times that David shows extreme grief. Now, understandably, this is a situation where anyone would grieve, wouldn't they? If all of your children, as you think, have actually died. But a servant manages to come and tell him, no, that's not the truth. Only Amnon has died, but at the hand of Absalom. Now, strictly speaking, Absalom didn't physically kill him, but he'd ordered it, therefore he was culpable. So in one sense, it's a bit, oh, thank God they're not all dead. But hang on a minute. What did he just say about Absalom? Oh, yeah, he's hated Amnon ever since Tamar was raped. And you think, what is going on? At this point, um, uh, David gets really, really angry. And Absalom realizes that, oh boy, maybe I've overstepped the mark. So he runs. And he's actually away for three years. Now, David, who is the engineer of Amnon's death. So you've got these really mixed emotions going on with David here. What's going on? Now, God had predicted, you remember, that David's family would suffer as a result of the sin with Bathsheba that we talked about last week. And God forgave David, but he did not cancel the consequences of that sin. Yeah? Yes, God forgives, but sometimes we have to live with the very real consequences. Do you remember? His seven-day-old son died as a direct result of that. And now the prophecies that were made over him are starting to come to pass. Now, really interesting thing happened. Do you remember who David's commander-in-chief was? Joab. Well done. I think you're remembering some of the names. Excellent. Well done. Joab was concerned that Absalom and David were disconnected. I thought, hang on. Amnon's dead. Daniel, who was another one of the sons, but we don't hear anything about, maybe is now out of the picture. Um, Come on, be reunited with one of your sons. So Joab actually tries to engineer him coming back. And he says, oh, Absalom really, really wants to come. But David eventually relents, but says he can come back to Jerusalem, but I'm not having him in the palace. Okay. So, 
Two more years pass. Absalom is desperate to see David. So much so that he sets Joab's field on fire. And you think, how is that going to achieve anything other than getting Joab's attention, which unfortunately it did. I'm sure any of you who've worked with children and teenagers will know that quite often they'll go to desperate lengths to get somebody's attention, dangerous or otherwise. So Absalom and David finally meet, and Absalom bows with his face to the ground, and the king kisses him, and everything seems fine. They've had five years apart. But hang on, what is Absalom up to now? Mm. This, this guy is on a slow burn fuse. Turn over to chapter 15, and we'll see what he starts to do. Verse 1. In the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. Can you just picture that for a second? If you've got 50 men running in front of you, the chariot is not going terribly fast, is it? So it's not a chariot to get from A to B at any particular speed, which is what a chariot is designed to do. So why is he doing this? show, you know, the, the screwing in the light bulb wave. Yes, hello, you're mine. Look how important I am. I can, I can pay 50 men to do nothing more than walk in front of my chariot. Okay. Oh, sorry, run. But they weren't going to get very far. Verse 2. He would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone came with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, oh, what town are you from? He would answer, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, look, your claims are valid and proper, but there's no representative of the king to hear you. And Absalom would add, if only I were appointed judge in the land, then everyone who had a complaint or case could come to me, and I would see that he gets justice. Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him and kiss him. Absalom behaved in this way towards all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. And so he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. Oh, oh, if I was still in school, my kids would say, creep. Yes? Can I borrow somebody? I probably promise I'm not going to um, embarrass you. Come here. Yeah. <laughs> right. If you stand there and face me. Right. Pretend that I'm, I'm Prince Ab Absalom. I'm going to get these right in my head. Absalom. And, and I'm a prince, and you come towards me, and you're supposed to just bow. Right? Now, instead of that, I go, oh, hello, <laughs> lovely to meet you. Right? In their space, in their face, if you ever see a politician shake hands, that's all right. If you ever watch them do this, that's not. it's not. Because they're trying to pull you into their space and get control of you. You watch how Trump shakes hands. 
Does, thank you very much. Does a lot of this double shake, yes? And I'm sure those of you who've ever had to deal with anybody in authority, it can be very formal, hello, or it can be over the top. And that is exactly what Absalom was trying to do. Now, let's have a few quick points to ponder. How quickly do you trust others? Trust takes time, doesn't it, to build. Is trust automatic in a family? Oh, no, they think. Sometimes trust in a family can be quickly lost and hurt more than anything else because you expect to be able to trust your family. What tactics did Absalom use to engender trust? He was trying to make himself a friend of the people. He was also implying that David wasn't prepared to listen, but, you know, I will. So he's undermining his father. I wonder, are you trustworthy? And I wonder how that happened. They say a reputation takes a lifetime to build and a moment to be destroyed. You have to be consistent to earn somebody's trust. There are some people I tend to gravitate towards quite often, but others I keep... Yeah. I once heard somebody say, and I think it's very true, in, in hotel rooms, forgive me if I've, I've shared this with you, but in, in old-fashioned hotel rooms where you had a, an actual key rather than one of these card swipe nonsense things, I know they're good and well, yeah, but if you went into a hotel room and you put your key in the lock, you expect it to click, turn, and open, yes? If it's the wrong key, therefore the wrong door, you don't get a click. Sometimes we need to cultivate listening for God's with somebody. You'll meet them, and if you get a you think, oh, I'll spend time with you. This is interesting. If you don't get a, okay, nice, but I'm not going to become bosom buddies with you. Yeah? And Absalom is showing some very dodgy tactics to try and get some people on board. Now, the big thing in this section is Absalom's conspiracy. Now, it's five chapters, and I'm sure if you've read it, you think, oh, my goodness, what's happening here? So I'm going to do a whistle-stop tour through those five chapters. It's all in your notes, so just hold on to your hats and stay with me. Yes? Yeah, okay. Absalom could have made an excellent king. The people loved him, but he lacked the inner character and control needed in a good leader. His appearance, skill, and position did not make up for lack of personal integrity. How many times in this series... Man looks at the outside, but God looks on the heart, yeah? When David sinned, he repented and his relationship with God was restored. But when Absalom sinned, he kept on sinning. Absalom systematically tried to eradicate any obstacle to him becoming king. First having Amnon killed, and his most likely successor. And then he plots to kill David, his dad himself. When David is absent from Jerusalem, Absalom has tried to, to gather a rebellion, David goes to try and quell, and quell it, 
Absalom uses his absence to sneak back into Jerusalem and provokes David by lying with his father's concubines on the roof of the palace. Remember, we had a prophecy that this was going to happen in the sight of all Israel. In doing so, it says he became a stench in his father's nostrils, fulfilling the condemning prophecy of Nathan as a direct consequence of his sin with Bathsheba. Now, Ziba, do you remember? We met him with Bethibosheth. Yep. So-called protector. We'll hear more about him later. Continues to try to play both sides against the other, and he lies to David, and it costs him dearly. However, the big problem now is David is beginning to lose confidence in his ability to rule and rule well, swayed by conflicting reports of both a conspiracy and who to trust. Throughout, though, his heart remains true to God. If he's in problems, he seeks God. If he needs to know what to do, he checks it out. Now, he attempts to protect the Ark of the Covenant. He brings it into the arena of conflict with him, do you remember sometimes we said sometimes they thought of the Ark of the Covenant as a good luck charm? Even David wondered about this. Originally taking it towards the scene of conflict, he suddenly orders its return back to Jerusalem, realizing that if anyone captured it again, it would be devastating. Joab, here we go again, is a key figure in the rebellion. He's constantly faithful to David, and his military strategy is absolutely astounding. However, despite David's request that his soldiers be gentle with Absalom for my sake, Joab kills him. He's here. We're told at one point in your homework that you read that Absalom had his hair cut once a year. Remember? Very long. And it weighed, I think, huge, huge weight of hair. Well, not ideal when you're going into battle and it gets caught in a tree. So he's kind of hanging by his hair from a tree and Job comes along and puts three spears into him when he gets caught in the branches of a tree. Now, David is made aware of Absalom's death and weeps and mourns for him. Now, let's pick it up in chapter 19 because it's an astonishing bit that happened. Joab has to challenge a king. Joab was, verse 1, Joab was told the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom and for the whole army the victory that day was turned into mourning because on that day the troops heard it said the king is grieving for his son and the men stole into the city that day as men stealing who are ashamed when they flee from battle even though they'd won. Verse 5, Joab went into the house of the king and said, Today you have humiliated all your men who have just saved your life and the lives of your sons and your daughters, your wives and concubines. You love those who hate you and hate those who love you. You've made it clear today that the commanders and their men mean nothing to you. I see that you would be pleased if Absalom were alive today and all of us were dead. Now go out and encourage your men. I swear by the Lord that if you don't go out, not a man will be left with you by nightfall. And this will be worse for you than all the calamities that have come upon you from your youth till now. Whoa! That's how to talk to a king, isn't it? David has one small rebellion to deal with after this from Sheba. 
and it's dealt with not by him, but by Joab. This guy is quite extraordinary, isn't he? Helping David out. David, you see, was a great king in some ways. He wasn't a great dad. He should have learned from Saul. The military leader that's actually the hero of this is not David, but Joab. There's no record of Joab ever losing a battle. He was a brilliant and ruthless strategist, but unfortunately seldom concerned about casualties of war. His career is one of the great accomplishments with shameful acts. He does not seem to have acknowledged God and without God's guidance became eventually self-destructive. Now, he was not, however, shrinking back from confronting a king with the truth, even though, as we've read, it was impalatable. He would give sound advice and could feel the pulse of the people. Yeah? Such people are very rare. If you find them, hang on to them. Now, just before we break for coffee, I want to do one more thing very quickly. We're told that David takes a census. Do you remember? He asked Joab to count the men that he has. Joab says, don't do it. Don't do it. Why? Why, why can't you count how many men he's got? Spot on. Mary, I didn't quite hear. Arrogance, and he trusted in the numbers. Now, if you count carefully, the numbers that came back after nine months of checking were one million... I can't remember the count. The count. Over one million men, right? Now, God's anger burned against David for daring to do it. Interestingly, we read this. And something for you to think about, maybe, over coffee. In 2 Samuel 24, we read, The anger of the Lord burned against Israel. He incited David against him, saying, Go and take a census. But in 1 Chronicles, it said, Satan rose up and incited David to take a census. Oh, this is one of those wonderful, the Bible is full of contradictions moments, isn't it? That seems to be a clear contradiction. So it's God. I love the Lego Bible. This is, is God saying, take the census? Is Satan saying, take the census? Which? What you have to do is you have to know the broad scope of Scripture. Who is more likely to prompt David to do a thing that would make God angry. Okay. Satan actively tempts, but God permits temptation. And sometimes when God has a plan in mind, he will allow Satan and his demons to do things, such as lie, even cause disaster and death, while actually they're working the will of God. Job is a case in point. So I think that it was... God's allowing this situation to happen, to see what David would do. And as soon as it happens, David repents, saying, I've sinned greatly in what I've done. Lord, I beg you, take away the guilt of your servant. I've done a very foolish thing. This is a difference between David and the others. When he knows he's done wrong, he repents.
couple of quick points to ponder. Where do you place your trust and sense of security? And how do overwhelming odds cause you to think about God's protection? You could say David was just checking if he had enough. Well, there's a saying, one in God is always a majority. Yeah? Now, the judgment for the sentence was horrendous. Take your pick. Three years of famine, three months of fleeing from your enemies, or three days of plague. Yeah? I wonder what you would have chosen. Not much of a choice, really, is it? David opts for the plague. 70,000 people die. And an angel of death was dispatched to carry out the awesome judgment, very reminiscent of Passover, yeah? And he stretches his hand over Jerusalem, presumably to destroy it, and God calls enough. That's, that's as far as you go. Interestingly, in chapter 24, you'll read that David saw the angel. And he saw the angel say, Stop. And the slaughter stops at the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. Now a prophet instructs David to build an altar there. David wants to buy the threshing floor. Yes? And Aruna says, I'll give it to you as a gift. There's a critical principle. The king replied, no, I insist on paying you for it. I will not sacrifice to the Lord my God burnt offerings that cost me nothing. Sometimes we say, Lord, I'm going to give sacrificially. And actually, it doesn't cost us very much at all. Be very careful. Now it's time for coffee, and it's all there. Off you go. Um, has everyone done register today? Cool. Thank you. Thank you for some of the feedback response forms I've already had. Wonderfully encouraging. You are most kind. Um, if you were not here last week, there are some spares over the table with Rose. Um, also, if you're listening on the podcast, we have uploaded the response form with session six last week. Sorry? Yes, the, the B section of last week's podcast. If you've looked at it, you'll understand what that means. Uh, there is a copy there for you. Thank you. You know when you're loved, when you're offered toast in the interval. Thank you very much indeed. Okay. You do realize that we have now reached the giddy heights of leaving 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel and moving into the first book of Kings. We're not going to do a massive amount at this point. And I have made a decision before this series even started of how far we would take the story of Solomon. So next week when you come, you'll discover that. But let's stick with 1 Kings. Now in my Bible, it has as a heading for the first chapter, Solomon becomes king. Yes? Sounds as if it was straightforward, doesn't it? Let's read the first three verses. 1 Kings 1, verse 1. Everybody there? I love seeing a room full of people with their heads stuck in a Bible. When King David was old and well advanced in years, 
He could not keep warm, even when they put covers over him. So his servant said to him, let us look for a young virgin to attend the king and take care of him. She can lie beside him so that our Lord the king may keep warm. I'm sure the uh, sensible heads amongst you will start thinking, oh, really? (laughs) So let's see what scripture says about this. They searched throughout Israel for a beautiful girl. So not just anybody, she was beautiful. And found, I want to say Abishag. It could be a Baishag, I'm not absolutely sure. It is an unfortunate name for anybody, I'm afraid. She was a Shunammite and brought her to the king. The girl was very beautiful. And she took care of the king and waited on him. But the king had no intimate relations with her. Makes it very clear there was no sexual intercourse going on. She was a beautiful, faithful, doting servant. Yes? Her name was Abishag. It's important to remember that name because she's going to crop up again later. So, he's frail. He's lying down most of the time because he's cold. So he's not getting up and doing kingly stuff, is he? No. Now, last week we learned about all of those princes that David had. Do you remember? There were 19 surviving sons. Quite a lot. Amnon, we just heard, has now been killed by his brother Absalom. Absalom has now been killed by Joab. The second son, Daniel, is never heard of again, so we assume probably is also dead. That still leaves a lot of sons impossible contention for David Strong. Up comes Son number four. Who is our third A this morning? Adonijah. Now, he amasses chariots. And what do they do with the chariots? Verse five. Now, Adonijah, whose mother was Haggith, put himself forward and said, I will be... I will be what? King. Who? Adonijah? Oh yeah, he wants to be king. So he got chariots and horses ready with 50 men to... Uh-oh, here we go again. 50 men to run ahead of him. Found a little drawing of what that may have looked like. Yes? Again, you see the light bulb wave of somebody who's trying to put himself forward as king. And then we have a really, really telling verse. His father had never interfered with him by asking, why do you behave as you do? There's not an interesting use of the word, interfered. I think most parents, when they're confronted with that kind of behavior, says, Adonijah, what are you doing? But the writer of one king said he'd never done that, David. Almost as if he was being ignored. We have a bit more evidence then 
that David's parenting skills leave a bit to be desired. That's absolutely true. Mary just made the observation that polygamy means that you can have lots and lots of children, so it's easy to lose the plot as who's where when. Sorry, this reminds me ever so much of the King and I, you know, where you have the, the march of the, the Siamese children come in. And who, who's that one? Who's that one? Who's that one? Now, in the film, it's portrayed as quite orderly, and he does know, and he knows how many are being born this month, and all of this kind of nonsense. Imagine if your family and your, you've got five wives expecting in the same month. I'm sure there was a point where that happened in the film and you think, whoa. But he wasn't keeping an eye on things. And maybe with Adonijah's moving up the ranks of succession, it wouldn't have been a bad idea to keep an eye on this young man. Now, verse 7 Adonijah, oh, sorry, hang on, I need to go back. End of this, where it says, Wait, why do you, nobody asked him, why do you behave as you do? He was also very handsome. Here we go, like that's a really bonus point for being a king, isn't it? And was born next after Absalom. So again, this is thing about what do they look like? Verse 7, Adonijah conferred with who? Pardon? Joab, son of Zeruiah, and with Abiathar the priest, that was David's priest, and they gave him their support. Whoa. What we know of Joab, if you've got Joab's support. Whoa, okay. But Zadok the priest, Benaiah son of Jehoiada, Nathan the prophet, Shimei and Rain, David's special guard, did not join Adonijah. So Adonijah is now garnering support. So here we got supporters on one side and opposers on the other. They're all powerful people. Yeah? But there is a significant group that don't want Adonijah doing anything stupid. Now, Adonijah tried to proclaim himself as king with these supporters and legitimize his actions by making a public sacrifice at the stone of Zoheleth near Enrogel. But he did not invite the ones we just mentioned, all of those on the opposers' list, to the subsequent celebration. More importantly, he certainly did not invite Solomon. Solomon was not invited. What does he do? Look at me, I'm going to be king. I'm going to make a public sacrifice. Everyone come, or except you. You can't, no, 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 that's fine. You, you can come. He's trying to make himself look like a king. Not working terribly well. Because a public show of apparent worship cannot make something into God's will. And God had not chosen Adonijah to be the next king. Adonijah had chosen himself to be the next king. Different matter altogether. A few points to ponder. You might have to think these one through a lot. 
In what ways do you think people try to defend their bad actions before God? Look, I was only following orders. Key one. She told me to do it. Not as bad as what you do. Pointing to somebody else. I must have read the memo wrong. What you didn't mean now, yeah? We, we very quickly try to defend ourselves, don't we? And we try to defend it before God, which really is silly because he knows the end from the beginning, why we thought, what we thought, and all of the outcomes. But still we try. Still we try. I wonder why people think this might work with God. You've gone really, really quiet on me on that one. Is the phrase merciful judge an oxymoron? Who can tell me what an oxymoron is? Yes, Alan. Yes. Two words usually next to each other, which sound as if they're complete opposites, and why would you join them together? My husband's favourite is Microsoft Works. Oh, gosh, this is on a podcast. Other, other things are also available. But, yeah. Yeah. Is it an oxymoron, merciful judge? Because we come to God expecting him, oh, we know we've done wrong, therefore he's a judge, but we expect him to be merciful. Yes? And I think Adonijah knew that he was probably walking on thin ice. So he's trying to figure out ways to make it look as if this is perfectly okay. Oh, big question. Can we influence God's will? (laughs) Right, so we have one answer over here. Can we influence God? Well, we can do, but not generally. Over here. That's what we must say. Yeah? There are um, in the Old Testament quite often things that God changed. Yeah. God changed his mind. He can change in the short term, but God will always achieve the long term of his kingdom and his purposes. Oh, that was a lovely theological answer. In the short term, God can change his mind, but in the long term, God has a long-term plan. I think that's a very astute answer, actually, Graham. Do you know what? Sometimes we don't know the full extent of God's will. So I think prayer comes into this category. If we don't know what God's will is on a specific subject then I'm, I'm going to just keep on in persistent prayer. Yeah? Do you remember last week when we were talking about the death of that little seven-day-old boy and how David's servants were quite astonished that he prayed intensely and then when the child died, it was, whoa, whew. and David makes this principle, until I knew, I kept seeking God's face. But once God took him, end of story. So I think once we know the will of God, that's it. Okay, I bow to your will. Interesting. Now, 
Let's move on a bit in chapter one. After Adonijah makes all of these lovely big sacrifices, a really strange thing happens. Verse 11. Nathan, the prophet, asked Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king? Oh. So something shifted, hasn't it? It's almost as if public acclamation in his public worship is, oh, well, he's king then. Without our Lord David's knowledge or knowing it. Now then, let me advise you how you can save your own life and the life of your son Solomon. Go into King David and say to him, My Lord the King, did you not swear to me your servant? Surely Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne. Why then has Adonijah become king? Now, the interesting point about that is we have no reference to this oath apart from this word. Yeah? There's obviously an agreement that Solomon is the next king, but this is the first that we heard of him. But Nathan is aware of it. And so Nathan explains to Bathsheba, go in and talk to David and tell him what I'm telling you to say. So she does that. Um, verse 19, Bathsheba is saying, Adonijah had sacrificed great numbers of cattle, fattened calves and sheep, and has invited all the king's son, Abiathar the priest and Job the commander of the army, but not Solomon. My lord the king, the eyes of all Israel are on you to learn from you who will sit on the throne of my lord the king after him. Otherwise, as soon as my lord the king is laid to rest, I and my son Solomon will be treated as criminals. Right? So she's laid it out. Ding dong! In comes Nathan and repeats the whole thing as if they had discussed it beforehand. Duh! That's exactly what happened. Nathan said, verse 24, Have you, my lord the king, declared that Adonijah shall be king after you and that he will sit on your throne? Today he has, and there we start the whole thing over again, but he adds a few things. Right now they are eating and drinking with him and saying, Long live King Adonijah. Uh-oh. Verse 28. King David said, Call in Bathsheba. So Bathsheba has come, said her bit. Nathan comes in, Bathsheba goes out to leave him to it. David says, get my wife back in here. Get her back. So she came in. The king then took an oath. As surely as the Lord lives, who has delivered me out of every trouble, I will surely carry out today what I swore to you by the Lord, the God of Israel. Solomon, your son, shall be king after me, and he will sit on my throne in my place. Bathsheba bows low, uh, low to, with her face to the ground, kneeling before the king said, May my lord, the king David, live forever. King David calls in the cavalry and said, Take your lord's servants with you. Set Solomon on my own mule. Interesting. Take him down to Gihon. There have Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet anoint him king over Israel. Blow the trumpet. And shout, long live King Solomon. Then you are to go up with him, and he is to come and sit on my throne and reign in my place. I have appointed him ruler of Israel and Judah. 
I think that's fairly clear, isn't it? I want Solomon king. So, they put him on the king's mule, crown, marched, anointed, and they sound this trumpet. Verse 40 reads, All the people went up after him, playing flutes and rejoicing greatly, so that the ground shook with the sound. The ground is shaking, and Adonijah feels it, and hears that blinking trumpet. He's made aware, even at the feast that he has made to proclaim himself a king, that David has made a very different proclamation. Let me pause there for a second. I want you to grasp this. Sometimes the world can make a proclamation over you. And in heaven, God will blow a trumpet and say, my proclamation is very different. You may think, well, all of this has happened. It's never going to be changed. But it was never God's will that Adonijah be king. But it was that Solomon be king. And if somebody speaks a word over your life, and you think, oh, no, that's all wrong. Just be aware. God is moving. God is blowing a trumpet. And God is doing some shaking to make sure that his will comes into play. Do you get it? Solomon was going to be crowned king. Do you know, sometimes it takes getting caught before someone is willing to give up their scheme. You ever found that? They'll do it, they'll do it, they'll do it, they'll do it. Oh, gosh. Sorry, was that wrong? Jolly well knew it was wrong. When Adonijah heard the sound of rejoicing, he panicked. And he ran, where? To an altar of mercy. Oh, dear. Only after his treason was exposed. I wonder sometimes if you get caught up in a mess and then ask God for mercy. You know, there's this funny phrase, it's always easier to ask forgiveness than permission. You come across that one? Some people say, oh, I just did it anyway. It's easier to ask forgiveness than permission. I'm sorry. In many ways, I'm a permission kind of woman. I like to check that something's okay before I rush in and do it, then blindly go through it and say, oh, it'll be all right. They'll be fine. They'll forgive me. can sometimes be quite arrogant. Don't like it. Don't like it at all. Now, where did he go? Horns of the altar. I'm sure some of you may have seen this, but in case you haven't, that's an altar that would have been in the tabernacle. Remember, the temple has not yet been built. Okay, so, so if you can see back there, Nadia, these corner bits, right, these corner bits, four corners, were regarded as a place of sanctuary. So in, in many ways, I bow to the history teachers here, there have been many churches throughout Europe 
where there are places that people have gone into the church and claimed sanctuary, you can't touch me in the church, comes from this. And you'd have to go in and literally grab onto those horns for dear life. Now, going into a church and staying within the confines of a medieval church is one thing. Going to an altar, you weren't supposed to move from the altar. Yes? So he went there to claim sanctuary. It doesn't actually happen very often in the Old Testament that somebody did this. But Adonijah felt that his position was so precarious that if I stay here, you won't be able to touch me. Solomon initially gives Adonijah a reprieve, conditional on him showing himself to be a worthy man. It's very reminiscent of a parent saying, if you're a good boy, you'll be all right. Of course, Adonijah has very little desire to do that. Just want to do a few more things. Last one in Testament. David is very close to death. But he determines that his final words are now going to be to Solomon, the son he has anointed as king. They're quite complicated, so I'll try and break it down. Number one, his last words to his son Solomon. Yes? Be strong and show yourself a man. Good. Two, observe all that God requires. Third one, walk in God's ways and keep his commands and laws in order to prosper in all you do and wherever you go. Right, so what he's saying is this is a condition of the dynasty continuing so that David's descendants would never cease to have someone on the throne of Israel. That actually, for David, was one of the most important things. So we have three very spiritual commands, yeah? Yeah? Be the man that God wants you to be, observing all he requires, and make sure you keep his commands and laws. Oh, kind of remember the one about idols and foreign wives, Solomon? Yeah? That might be a good one to remember. Four. Now, the people. Take revenge on... Oh. Why? Well, Joab had actually killed Abner and Amasa, two other commanders in peacetime. But you've also got to wonder about his part in the rebellion of Adonijah. He'd been faithful all that time. He went through all the horrors of Absalom's rebellion. And now David says, take revenge. Show kindness to the sons of Barzillai. We haven't had a chance to go through that yet. But they were great, great guys, allowing them king's table privileges. Remember those of you when we talked about Mephibosheth? When you sit at a king's table, you get certain privileges. They'd stood by David during Absalom. See, I've done it again. Absalom with an O in the middle. Oh, Absalom with an A in the middle. Right. Deal with Shemaim. Now, this guy, when David was going to try and quell the rebellion, had actually tried to stone David. But David swore not to kill him, thinking, well, if God's cursed me through this guy, then fine, I'm not going to kill him. However, this did not mean that he had protection from Solomon. So David is saying, deal with him. I'm not going to kill him, but go ahead. Solomon is instructed to bring his grey head down to the grave in blood. Whoa! 
wool. So we have two promises on the go here. The conditional promise. David and his descendants remain in office only as kings when they honoured and obeyed God. If his descendants fail to do this, they'd lose the throne. So it's a conditional, do this, and then this will happen. However, there's an unconditional promise too, that David's line would go on forever, directly fulfilled in the birth of Jesus, who's a direct line descendant. Yeah. Sometimes God makes conditional promises, sometimes unconditional. Your love for God, and more importantly, his love for you, is unconditional. Whatever you do, he will always love you. Now, we have this lovely last little bit. Chapter 2. Adonijah is a really dumb guy. Did you know that? What does he say? Adonijah went to Bathsheba, Solomon's mother, and she asked him, do you come peacefully? Yeah, that's a good question with this guy. He said, oh, yeah, peacefully. Then he added, I have something to say to you. You may say it, she replied. As you know, he said, the kingdom was mine. Really? (laughs) She replied, you may say it. Clever man. As you know, he said, the kingdom was mine. All Israel looked to me as their king. Really? But things changed and the kingdom has gone to my brother for it's come to him from the Lord. He's glossing over his part in this, isn't he? Big time. Now, I have one request to make. If you don't refuse me, you may make it, she said. Notice she's not agreeing to it. She says, okay, go ahead. So he continued, please ask King Solomon, he will not refuse you, to give me Abishag the Shunammite as my wife. Very well, Bathsheba replied, I will speak to the king for you. She has no real clue what he's doing here. So she goes into Solomon to speak to him for Adonijah. The king stood up to meet her, respect his mum, bowed down to her, respects his mum, sat back down. He had a throne brought for the king's mother and she sat down at his right hand. I have one small request (laughs) to make of you, she said. Do not refuse me. Make it my mother, says Solomon. I won't refuse you. So she said, let Abishag the Shunammite be given in marriage to your brother Adonijah. King Solomon answered, why do you request Abishag the Shunammite for Adonijah? You might as well request the kingdom for him. After all, he is my older brother. Yes, for him and for Abiah the priest and Joab the son of Zeruiah. Then King Solomon swore by the Lord, may God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if Adonijah does not pay with his life for this request. And now as surely as the Lord lives, who has established me securely on the throne of my father David and has founded a dynasty for me as he promised, Adonijah shall be put to death today. So King Solomon gave orders to Benaiah, son of Jehoiada, and he struck down Adonijah, and he died. Oh my goodness. All of the A's have gone. Amnon, Absalom, Adonijah. For Adonijah to possess Abishag, part of David's harem, was equivalent actually to claiming the throne. She was that close. And Absalom had done exactly the same thing in his rebellion against David. 
Solomon knew what Adonijah was playing at and has now removed the strongest rival to his throne. He does have to deal with that long list from David in time. Interesting to note that at the end of chapter 2, Joab also goes to the horns of the altar. He realizes that, boy, is he in trouble. Final points to ponder. Solomon is now politically ready to start reigning as king and has removed obstacles. But was that David's primary injunction? No, the primary injunction was get your life right before God. Yeah, it was only afterwards that the obstacles. I wonder if you had a clean slate, like Solomon now has, where would your future start? And what would your plan look like? That's in your notes, because that's not an easy question to answer. One thing. Anyone got a one thing from this morning yet? Yes, we have one here. Um, the guy who caught both pear and tree. Absalom. Yeah. Um, so he, I mean, he was very proud of his hair. Yes, he was proud of his hair. Caught by his vanity. Where, where might I be caught by my vanity? Oh, how interesting. Because Absalom was caught by his hair, he was caught out by his vanity. Where would we be caught out if we were that vain? Interesting one thing. Anyone else? It said, um, it's not a good idea to listen to people. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, I don't really listen to what other people critique or think of me. I don't even think or worry too much about or think about myself. What I really worry is what does the Lord think about me? Yeah. Which is a good injunction not to take much, not to take the wrong notice of what other people say. Yeah. I think that's absolutely true. The important thing, it's easy to say, isn't it? It's yes. only important what God thinks of me. And yet we are surrounded by culture which says, hmm, you really want to wear that out? Hmm, ooh, don't like that. Trying to compare. What God says of us is wonderful. But I think the battle we're in is Satan wants us to believe the bad stuff and not believe the good stuff. Yes? It's like somebody once said to me, do you know, the battle starts before you just become a Christian. And Satan will say to you, oh, you want to become a Christian? Oh, you're terrible. You're evil. Oh, you could never become a Christian because God would never love someone like you. And as soon as you become a Christian, oh, you're too good for these hypocrites. <laughs> yes? Immediately. And I think it is a wonderful gift of God to give us the wisdom that we're going to start learning about, to sort out who is saying what, is it valid, is it relevant, and at the end of the day, am I going to start believing what God says about me? Am I actually going to believe it? I don't know if you've been making use of the prayer station. This was on last week's bookmarks. Love it. You are loved. You are forever loved. My love for you knows no bounds. It is lavish, limitless, and inexhaustible. I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. 
I will never leave you nor abandon you. You are mine. Nothing you can do, sorry, nothing you do can make me love you more or take my love away from you. Your value is not defined by your achievements. Your value is not defined by your failures. You will always be my child, my beloved, my treasure, and I delight in you. I'm keeping it in my Bible because I love that. That is truth. That is God's truth. And I'm afraid that a lot of the political stuff that's been going on in these accounts has warped the truth. Listen, one more, just one thing, and then I must let you go. Yes, Nadia. <laughs> Two things that I just wanted to say. Yeah, for me, when I was listening to it last night, it was um, really seeing politics into this. Politics. Mm-hmm. And also that idea to say, oh, so politics started then. We seem to be like differentiating, to, like think, yeah, it's a world thing. And I know, yes, maybe there are not many Christians, but, but it kind of made me to really want to pray for our politics and our politics oh, yeah. that it really started then as much as yes some of them were they doing things their own way not involving God even in this but it really led me to realize yes politics started ages ago thank you for that summary line because I need to summarize the podcast politics existed in the Bible yeah and our nation Nothing changes. Our nation is in crisis. I wish I could find a different word. But it is. And, and I was talking to some friends just two nights ago. And they were saying, you know, how do we reach our young people? How do we reach an Instagram generation? They're not going to engage. Your attention span is terrible. And they're so disenchanted because of politics that no one is prepared to do anything for anybody becoming insular, I thought of you, Steph, having to deal with our youngsters like this. And I was just thinking, oh, this conversation is getting so depressing. And I just, I said from the bottom of my heart, we need a move of God in our nation. We need God to step in in revival, turn the hearts of the children to the fathers and the fathers to the children and just be Jesus to everyone that we meet, everyone we see. We don't have to be Bible bashers. We just have to show them the love of Jesus. Yes? And I'm afraid that our current situation has got people so inward looking that we can't see the bigger picture. And I hope if... This series has helped you understand is that God looks on your heart. He doesn't look on your family. He doesn't look on your status. He doesn't look on the clothes that you wear. He looks on your heart. And if your heart is towards him, amazing things can be achieved. David was far from perfect. But he chose to keep coming back to God, coming back to God. Lord, I've done this. Sorry. Lord, I'm sorry. It was genuine repentance. Arrogance, not going to wash it with God at all. But yeah, we need to pray for our politicians. Absolutely, 100%. Thank you, thank you, thank you. If you could get feedback forms back to me by next week, 
which will be... You mentioned um, Chronicles 1. There's a verse that he quoted or he quoted from Chronicles yep. um, talking about David. Is there a link or how does the book of Chronicles link with I don't know. It's just... a big question, which is why I haven't gone into 1 Chronicles. Um, there are similarities, and sometimes Chronicles adds different details. So if you want to, it's probably a good thing. Sorry, I realize I'm near the speakers. Having read all that we've read, and bless your hearts, you've read 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel so far in seven weeks, which is pretty good. You've got a baseline. Now, if you wish, in your own time, after next week, move into 1 and 2 Chronicles and see... Where are the similarities? Where are the differences? And what might the differences mean? Why is there a different bias in that book? They were originally, the four books were called the four books of the kings. But they have now been split up. But that is a whole other arena. But it's worth bringing up. Thank you. Okay. I will, if you want to come and get your notes for today, they're here. And if any of you have missed any of them, they're here. And if you didn't pick up your evaluation sheets, they're here. Thank you, Richard. God bless you. you. God bless all of you.